Have you ever noticed that there's a pretty predictable pattern when it comes to the TV show that's, the, that's at the end of a season, the season finale? Uh, they, they tend to have these two elements that they try to do in the season finales. And the one is that, that they're going to wrap up and they're going to finish some of the plot developments that have been going on through the season. So you want to have a little bit of a sense of closure. But the other thing, especially the advertisers want to make sure that the TV makers do, is to have some sort of unanswered questions, a new mystery, a new plot theme, something new to say, man, I've got to make sure that I watch next season. Well, as we finished John 9 last week, one of the things that we realized is that in a lot of ways, John 9, for the first century readers, would kind of function like a season finale. There's a sense of completion, but there's also these outstanding questions. There, there's a mystery. There's something that those readers would have wanted to know. Because there's this ending of completion where you see the blind man now sees, but we also realize that he's been expelled from the synagogue. And you've got to be wondering, well, what happened to him? Because the reality is our culture and our context is so completely different that it's probably hard for us to really catch the gut punch that it would have been to be put out of the synagogue. We, we might think of it like getting kicked out of your church and as awful and as terrible and as traumatic as that would be, guess what? You've got a hundred others you could choose from. Um, that we live in this, this very choice-oriented, consumer-oriented society. Uh, there's a historian who says that if you lived prior to 1750, a person who lost their family and community would be as good as dead. That, that getting kicked out of the synagogue would have been like all of these sort of things happening on the same day. You lost your job. Your health insurance was canceled. Your life insurance policy was canceled. Your long-term care insurance was canceled. Your access to public services and public facilities like hospitals and welfare was revoked. All of your retirement savings funds was confiscated and you are left completely on your own. And how many of you, if, you're, if, if you experience someone getting kicked out of, the, uh, out of the synagogue, say, that's great news, I want that kind of life. John and his gospel has been writing to, to bring us to a point of having faith in Jesus. And I suspect that if you stood out on the city streets and you asked people as they passed by in the first century, said, you're given a choice. Either A, you can be blind, or B, you can be put out of your family and out of your synagogue and be on your own. I'm guessing most people say, I would choose being blind than being completely out on my own. And John 9 ends saying that he was put out from the synagogue. And those readers might have been thinking, I thought this was a good news message. And in order for it to be a good news message, we need to be sure that we read both John 9 and John 10 together because together they tell the story of what Jesus has come to do. John 10 is the full picture of what an abundant life looks like. So let's begin reading John 10 with the understanding that this is a continuation of the narrative from John 9. And Jesus begins with this uh, story or parable or allegory, that sort of thing. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way, is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls out his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought them all out, then he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of the strangers. 
I think that Scott alluded to this earlier. These would have been images that would be very familiar to them. Uh, but for some of us who live at a little bit of a distance, maybe we need to catch up a little bit and get the right images in our mind. Uh, the first correction that we need to make as we think about this, um, this sheepfold is we often think of uh, sheepfolds being out in these kind of uh, rural, out in the middle of nowhere areas. This picture that Jesus is painting is not of a, a rural sheep pen, but of an urban sheep pen. You know, we, li we live in a world, at least this is the world I'd like to live in, where there's a great distance between people and animals. I mean, I like to have a little bit of space between me and my animals. But if you lived in, in any of these cities in the first century, there's going to be a compression of these sort of things. And especially amongst the wealthy, they would, they would go in and they would find a place in the city where they would keep and park their sheep overnight. So you think about it, a few houses back to back, and it kind of creates a dead-end alley. And you say, babe, that would be a great place for a sheep pen. All it needs is a gate, and we've got a place to keep our sheep overnight. And so you'd have this co-op, these several wealthy individuals who would get together and they'd keep all of their sheep together. They're right there in town. And then they would go back and they would sleep or the shepherd would drop the sheep off and they would sleep for the night. And so the two images that become important for us to recognize as Jesus talks about this sheep pen is that there's a gatekeeper who has to know the shepherd. That's a separate job and a separate function that, that in the day you take the sheep out and, and the gatekeeper needs to make sure he lets the right sheep go out with the shepherd. And when the shepherd comes back in, he needs to be able to recognize this is indeed the person who keeps their sheep here overnight. And the second thing is that the sheep need to know his voice because you have multiple people who are putting their sheep all in the same pen. Well, how do you know whose sheep is whose? Well, you call out your own sheep and just your own sheep come and somebody else's flock stays in the sheep pen. Uh, if you don't believe it happens, just Google the sheep listen to their shepherd's voice and you can see videos where this sort of thing happens. Because of time, we're not going to do that. But this particular story, of course, there's a focus on the comparison between two types of people who have two very different ways of gaining access to the sheep. And to identify the character of the person, you just have to look at the actions that define them. So Jesus starts with the action. There's a person who does not enter the gate, but climbs in another way. Uh, this is what gives us this sense that, that this is an urban context because this idea of climbing in, uh, you know, the, the, the gates are there and you can just step over it. This climbing in is you're coming up to one of these houses there and you're jumping in. If that's the action that you take, it's easy to identify you. If that's what you do, then you are a thief and abandoned. But if you are the person who enters by the gate and you enter by the gate because the gatekeeper recognizes you, then that person is the genuine, the authentic shepherd. And then there is a lot of cause and effect between the actions of the shepherd and the sheep. What does the shepherd do? He calls his own sheep and he leads them out. What do the sheep do in return? They follow because they know his voice. So there's a recognition that if the thief or the bandit were to call out, then you're going to have some different responses. They will not follow and they will not go where he goes because they do not know the voice of a stranger. Then John chapter 10 verse 6 says, Jesus used this figure of speech, or your translation might say parable, um, with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So we have to kind of stop here and do a little bit of interpretive work to say, who is the them to which Jesus is speaking? Or when he first began, truly I tell you, well, who is that you? And that's what gives us the clearest uh, situation that Jesus is continuing the conversation from John 9. 
Your Bible has a chapter break. There were no initial chapter breaks. And so 9 and 10 are to be read as one continual narrative. The you that we finish up would then be the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders that we left off in the conversation with at the end of John 9. There's not a single case where Jesus begins a, a lesson or teaching with very truly, I tell you, this is always a kind of a pinnacle moment. And so this is to be the pinnacle moment of what happened in John chapter 9. He's addressing the Jewish leaders. And so maybe we need to remind ourselves, what are these Jewish leaders like that he's addressing? And we get a picture of that in John 9, just using that as the most recent example. They use fear and intimidation to get what they want. Uh, remember when they went to the blind man's parents and they're asking the questions and the parents have said that they were afraid to answer why? Because they had already said that anybody who confesses that Jesus is the Messiah will be kicked out or put out of the synagogue. So they're using their authority to kind of force people to do the very things that they want them to do. And of course, that blind man, when they go to him, they say, give glory to God and others. They're treating him like Achan and say, hey, unless you admit this wrongdoing you've done. And then the text tells us very clearly in verse 24, in verse uh, 28, that they began to, depending on translation, to revile him or to insult him or to abuse him. It started to bully him, to get him to say what they wanted him to say. In 934, they lecture him and they say, you were born entirely in sin, labeling him in that way. And of course, in verse 34 also, they do in fact drive him out of the synagogue. So on the one hand, getting kicked out of the synagogue is terrible news. On the other hand, Jesus wants us to realize that they are not the legitimate owners of the flock. And to get kicked out of that flock is not nearly as devastating or as detrimental, especially if there is another flock with another leader that is being offered. I, I, I know that for some of you, this idea of living under fear and intimidation from those who rule over you is probably really, really close to home. You say, I've lived that, I've experienced that. For others of you, maybe you don't know what that would look like or what that would feel like. And for us to really understand what Jesus is teaching, it's something that we need to begin to at least imagine and conceptualize. So I want to tell you the story of a guy named Stephen Pemberton. When he was about five years old, uh, he was a foster kid, and they took him to this, uh, to this home, the Robinsons' home, and he was there with his government official, and boy, just the nicest family. So, of course, he's placed in that home. And as soon as that government official uh, is gone, they sit him down and they go over the family rules they have for foster kids. So here's their rules. Rule number one, you are never to tell anyone outside this house what goes on here. If you do, you will go right back to that terrible home you're in. Number two, we aren't your mother or father. You call us ma'am or sir. Number three, you don't speak unless spoken to. Number four, you are dumb and ugly. Something about you isn't right. Everyone knows this. Number five, no one will ever take your word over ours. Number six, you will eat what we give you when we give it to you. When you're hungry, well, that's tough luck. Don't open the refrigerator ever. Number seven, we can beat you at any moment in any place at any time with whatever is in arm's reach. We don't need a reason. No one wants you, especially your own mother and father. You're here to wait on us, hand and foot. You're only as good as what you can do for us. The ironic thing is even people who grow up in homes that are dysfunctional, it's still home. And they miss a parent, no matter how negligent that parent might be. And if you can imagine this sort of authoritarian rule, then you can imagine what it's like living under the rule of the Pharisees that this is their rule, that you're only as good as what you can do 
for us. And so the leaders oppress and mistreat people. And as Jesus tells them this parable, we are told, but they do not understand what he was saying to them. In other words, they are an unliving embodiment of the parable itself. The sheep, what do they do? They hear his voice. But those who are not of the flock say, no idea what you're talking about. And they then represent those who have no idea what it is that Jesus is saying. So in an effort to help them to begin to understand, Jesus will take this parable and he's going to give too many lessons. The thing that we need to know is he's not expanding just on this parable. He's using them to say, here's one lesson and another. The first lesson will come in John uh, 10, 7 uh, through 10 and the verses 11 uh, through 17. So we're going to look at these two little mini sermons. Here's the first one. So again, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep do not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. The title of this sermon clearly would be, Jesus is the gate for the sheep. In every sheep pen, there's going to be legitimate and illegitimate ways of entering and exiting that sheep pen. And what we are to understand is that there is a contrast between those who legitimately have access by the gate and those who are forced to come in by other means. And Jesus then is the gate that stands in between coming in and exiting for the sheep. And if you think about a gate, you can think that there's these two positions that a gate can have. The first is the open gate. What's the purpose or the reason for the open gate? Well, that's so that people can enter in. The legitimate way to enter in is that the gatekeeper who recognizes the shepherd will open it and the sheep can be brought in there and then the gate is open for access. The gate is also open so that you can go out. Getting into a sheep pen, being in the protection of sheep pens is a great thing, but you don't want to spend your whole life living in a sheep pen, especially an urban sheep pen where there's nothing to eat. So you want to be able to come in at night when there's dangers, but also be able to go out to the green pastures. And what the shepherd does is he can use the gate as the means of exiting and as the means of entering into the pasture. Of course, then the gate can also be closed. The closed gate then represents protection from the dangers. Jesus comes so that they might have life. What determines the gate being opened or the gate being closed is what is in the best interest of the sheep. When the sheep need to be protected, they come into the gate and the gate is closed. When the sheep need those open pastures, the gate is open so that they can go out and wander around. But there are those, Jesus said, who came before me, who are thieves and bandits. What characterizes the thieves and bandits is their desire to steal and to kill and to destroy. In other words, they are selfish and they are selfishly motivated. They are going to do what they do by using the sheep as pawns on the chessboard to get whatever outcome benefits them, whatever outcome blesses them. And to do that, they will use rules, regulations, any of those sort of things, as long as they get the kind of outcome that they want. And Jesus wants his listeners to know that he is the legitimate authority who can decide who is in the flock and also who is kept out of the flock. And he also wants us to know that he will not use that authority to harm us, but he uses that authority instead to bless us. And isn't that different than a lot of people who get authority and they use that authority for their own benefit and for their own good? 
Well, that leads into this second sermon that begins in John uh, 10, 11. We're just going to read a few verses. Uh, we've probably already had it read a couple times. It's probably fresh in your mind. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd, does not own the sheep. And he sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep, and he runs away. And the wolf snatches them up, and he scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Once again, we have a comparison. The comparison this time is between two types of leaders. One thing that would be helpful, we don't have the time to do, but go back some time on your own time and read Exodus, uh, Ezekiel 34, where, where God has talked about the leaders and the ways that they're misleading. And in Exodus 34, 15, God has promised one day I'm going to come and I'm going to shepherd my own people because those who have been entrusted to shepherd have not done a good job. And so the contrast is between which would you choose, the hired hand or the shepherd to watch over you? So let's look at the behaviors of the hired hand. When there's a danger, what does the hired hand do? The hired hand only ever has one goal, preserve and extend your own life. And the hired hand doesn't care about the detrimental effects for the flock. He runs, even if that means that the wolf is going to be able to get access to the sheep, even if that means that the wolf will snatch them, even if that means the wolf will scatter them, as long as the hired hand protects himself. That's all he cares about, and that's all he's concerned about. There's a book called Why Nations Fail. One of the reasons the authors identify is what they call extractive institutions. The word extracting, of course, being to take. And extractive institutions, what they do is they take legitimate resources from one subset of society to benefit themselves. So these are people, anytime they get into a position where they can determine or regulate anything, specifically you might see this in a government where I get into a position, I'm going to now pass laws that somehow benefit me. Or I'm going to vote for this if you give me a little bit of kind of pocket cash to be able to do this sort of thing. There is a, um, a leader in the country of Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe, and he was a pretty terrible guy. I don't know if you've seen much of his life story. And, um, when the country was in just kind of really deep economic turmoil, what Mugabe did was he, he, he worked hard and, and effortlessly to, to uh, uh, pledge with the, the government in order to increase both his and his uh, cabinet's salaries by 200%. That's where his energy was whenever it came to this hardship of economic things. As a part of the response in 2000, what the, the, the government state-owned bank decided to do was to, to incentivize people who were saving money uh, in the economic times. And so uh, they said anybody who, who deposits or keeps $5,000, Zimbabwe dollars, in the bank account, um, they're going to do a lottery, and they're going to draw a name, and whoever you know, whoever's name is drawn will get $100,000 in order to incentivize uh, people to save in order to bring up uh, some economic stability. And so this government-run bank, when they pull out a name, anybody want to guess what name they pulled out? Robert Mugabe, the president of Zimbabwe, somehow miraculously managed for that to end up for his own benefit. That's what the hired hands do. How can I be benefited from this? How can this work to my advantage? And the Jewish leaders have exemplified themselves as these kinds of people who are not concerned about the sheep, but only their own advancement. Remember back in John 8, the woman caught in the act of adultery? What was their first thought? Was their first thought, how, how do we need to address this woman? How do we need to help this woman? What do, their first thought was, how can we use her as a pawn 
to at best Jesus in this particular situation. Absolutely no concern for the sheep. They then represent the hired hand. And when the hired hand is running the roost, then the sheep will scatter. In contrast, Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And already you can begin to see the contrast between the hired hand and the good shepherd. The hired hands who do everything for self-interest and self-benefit, the good shepherd now will give freely, even to the point of a willingness to give his own life. When it comes to sacrificial giving, we have this kind of rule of relational proximity. And, and that states that the closer you are to someone, a sacrifice on their behalf makes more sense. Like if, 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 if there is a story about an intruder breaking into a home and a parent, you know, kind of throwing themselves in front of that intruder, nobody says, I don't get it. I mean, why did the parent do that? That was just stupid. Everyone realizes when you're close to someone, you're going to be willing to sacrifice for them. What Jesus is saying is he says, I know my sheep. Jesus has like a father-son relationship, a father-daughter relationship with all of the sheep. And he also has that kind of a relationship with the father. And because he knows the heart and the will of the Father, and he knows the sheep himself, then, then anyone who, who is here on earth, Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm willing to lay down my life, to give my life on behalf of those who I know so intimately. Kristen Hanna tells a, a story, a fictional story of a World War II event where a young na lady named Isabel is... Uh, working against German occupation in France. And so she's, she's passing messages and she's helping spies to escape. And she has this code name, Nightingale. Well, as she becomes more effective at what she's doing, the Germans are more concerned about making sure that she's uh, arrested. And at one point she is arrested. And the first question they ask her is, who is the Nightingale? Of course, she's the Nightingale, but she's not going to say it. And so she's putting them off. And several days there's interrogations. There's, um, you know, just a lot of violence involved there. And after a couple of days, her dad comes into the room. And guess what her dad says? Her dad says, I am the Nightingale. And he's taken out and he's shot because of that. See, there's a recognition that when you love someone, you will be willing to sacrifice so that they might live. And Jesus is saying that that's what he does. He lays down his life. And Jesus is very clear about his agency and his control in this process. Look at verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. One of the things that John's made pretty clear throughout his gospel is anytime Jesus wants to get out of a bind, anytime Jesus wants to get out of a pickle, he can do it. John doesn't tell us how he does it. He just says he can do it anytime he wants. John 8, 20. He spoke these words while he was teaching in the treasury. Everybody's getting upset, but no one arrested him because his hour has not yet come. So they're all worked up. They're going to get out, and then Jesus, he gets out of it. John 8, uh, 59. So they picked up some stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. At the end of this, we're going to see John 10, 39. They tried to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And what John wants us to make sure that we understand and that we do not miss, that if and when Jesus is ever caught, it is not because someone caught him, it's because he gave his life. They do not lay hands on him, except that he allows them to lay hands on him. They don't capture him because they're stronger than them. They capture him because he submits to the will of his Father. Well, we, when we see Jesus on the cross, John wants us to know that he is there freely, he is there voluntarily, and he is there of his own motivation because he loves his sheep. 
I think what John is trying to do in John 10 is to reframe what people might have thought at the end of John 9. Getting out of the synagogue uh, tends to be a story of loss, a, a story of, of, of giving up on something. But Jesus says to us, if you realize that the synagogue is run by selfish leaders who are not legitimate in God's eyes, then maybe that loss is not a loss after all. And if you realize that this is not just simply a story about, about being asked to leave that, but being brought into a new flock, and this flock is the legitimate flock that is overseen by the good shepherd, then maybe there shouldn't be sadness, but maybe there should be joy and celebration in what is gained. I think about it in the context of this quote from Jim Elliott. He says, uh, He is not a fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'll read it again. Make sure you catch that. He is not a fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I think the way John 10 would say this is, he is no fool who gives up a community led by those who are selfish and illegitimate to gain a community that is led by one who is selfless and legitimate. Let's not grieve the fact that they were put out of the synagogue. Let's instead celebrate that they were welcomed into a flock, the legitimate flock that is overseen by the good shepherd. I mentioned earlier the story of Stephen Pemberton. By the time he was in high school, he finally convinced government agencies that maybe there was a better home for him out there. They called around. He actually left home on uh, December 30th, and you know nobody has anything going on, and so it was a little bit of a struggle to find a place to find him. And they had called everyone they knew, and then he said, you know, there was, there was a mentor that he had met once when he was in high school who said, if you ever need anything, let me know. He's like, I don't know if that includes the guy keeping me or not, but they gave the guy a call and he said, sure, send him over. A couple weeks after staying with him, they went to visit this guy's parents. And he tells the story of walking in the front door and his new grandmother, she comes and she gives him a big hug. This is the biggest hug he's ever had in his life. He hears a voice joking with her behind him as his new grandpa says, give the boy some air. He says he came over and he took both of my hands and just clutched them in his hands. And Stephen said this, Never before had I been welcomed and loved so immediately and unreservedly. And that's what Jesus is offering when he talks about the flock. He is the gate by which we are invited into the people of God. And there is no other means. There's no back door. There's no side door. There is simply the gate. And we enter by Jesus. And we enter knowing that he will watch over us. That if necessary, and he's proven it already, he would give up his life for his sheep. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And we go knowing that we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're going to stand and sing a song. If you have any kind of a need, um, if you want somebody to pray with you, if you want to talk about your, your spiritual life, your relationship with God, just invite you to come to the back while we stand and sing this next song together. Let's stand.